Happy Tuesday. So today I'm going to share with you a story of indigenous people. But here's the twist. It's a science fiction story. It's a little fantasy, science fiction, apocalyptic type tale. So let's dive into The Marrow Thieves by Cherie Demoline. Just when you think you have nothing left to lose, they come for your dreams. In a world nearly destroyed by global warming, the indigenous people of North America are being hunted for their bone marrow, which carries the key to recovering something the rest of the population has lost, the ability to dream. Frenchie and his companions struggling to survive don't yet know that one of them holds the secret to defeating the marrow thieves. The way to kill a man or a nation is to cut off his dreams. The way the whites are taking care of the Indians, killing their dreams, their magic, their familiar spirit. William S. Burroughs. Where you've nothing else, construct ceremonies out of the air and breathe life upon them. Cormac McCarthy, The Road. Chapter 1. Frenchie's Coming to Story. Mitch was smiling so big his back teeth shone in the soft light of the solar-powered lamp we'd scavenged from someone's shed. Check it out! He held out a bag of Doritos between us. A big bag, too. Holy! Mitch, where'd you get that? I touched the air-pressurized bag to confirm that it was real. My dirty fingers skittered across the shiny surface like skates. It was real. My mouth filled with spit, and a rotten hole in one of my molars yelled its displeasure. In the house back there, hidden on top of the cupboard like Ma used to do when she didn't want us getting into stuff. Mom had only been gone a few months, so talking about her still stung. My brother popped the bag to cover our hurt, and like cheese-scented fireworks, that loud release of air and processed dust cheered us up. We were in a treehouse somewhere on the outer rim of a small city that had long been closed down like a forgotten convenience store. When we were, we were a few hours from the southern metropolitan city, which used to be Toronto back when there were still so many cities that each had a unique name instead of a direction. West City, Northeast Metropolis, Southern Township. It was a great treehouse. Some lucky kid must have had a contractor for a father. It was easily two stories up from the unmown lawn and had a gabled roof and real shingles. We'd been there for three days now, skipping school, hiding out, before he'd left with the council and we'd never see him again. Dad had taught us the best way to hide is to keep moving, but this spring had been damp. It had rained off and on for over a week, and we couldn't resist the dry comfort of a one-room treehouse with built-in benches. Besides, we reasoned, it was high up like a sniper hole, so we could see if anyone was coming for us. It probably started with that first pop of air against the metallic plastic, no louder than a champagne cork. I imagine the school of truancy officers, recruiters we called them, coming for us. Noses to the wind, sunglasses reflecting the row of houses behind which we were nestled in our wooden dream home. And sure enough, by the time we'd crunched through the first sweet, salty handfuls, they were rounding the house into the backyard. Crap! What? Mitch put the bag down and turned out to the window that cut into the north wall. Francis, you're going to have to listen to me really carefully. What? I knew it was bad. He never called me Francis. 
No one but Mom ever did, and then only when I was in trouble. I'd been Frenchy since I could remember. Listen now. He turned away from the window to lock eyes with me. You're going to climb out the back window and onto the roof as low as you can get. But Mitch, I can't climb out of a window. Yes, yes, you can, and you will. You're the best damn climber there is. Then when you're on the roof, you're going to grab the pine tree behind us and climb up into it. Stay as close to the trunk as you can. You have to shimmy into the back part where the shadows are the thickest. You go first. Too late, buddy. They know someone is up here. Just not how many someones. I felt my throat tighten into a pinhole. This is how voices are squeezed into hysterical screeching. Mitch, no! He turned again, his eyes burning with purpose, bordering on anger. Now, move it, Francis. I couldn't have him mad at me. He was all I had left. I clambered out of the window and folded upward to grasp the slats on the roof. I shimmied up, belly to the wood, but pulled down tight. I lifted my head once, just high enough to look over the small peak of the center, just enough to see the first recruiter lift a whistle to his mouth, insert it under his sandy mustache, and blow that high-pitched terror tone from our nightmares. Under the roof, I heard Mitch start banging the plywood walls, screaming, Tabernacle! Come get me, devils! Fear launched me into the pine. The hairy knots of the sticky trunk scraped my thighs, sweat and skin holding me there. The needles poked into my arms and shoved into my armpits, making me tear up. I pulled my sweaty potty towards the other side of the pine, scrapes popping up red and puffy on my thighs and my torso. All the while, the whistles, too now, blew into the yard. Come get me, morons. I saw both of the recruiters now, high-waisted navy shorts, gym socks with red stripes pulled up to their knees above low, mesh-sided sneakers, the kind that make you look fast and professional. Their polo shirts were partially covered with zip-front windbreakers, one shade lighter than their shorts. The logo on the left side was unreadable from the distance, but I knew what it said. Government of Canada, Department of Honorology. Around their necks, on white cords, hung those silver whistles. Mitch was carrying on like a madman in the treehouse, yelling while they dragged him down the ladder and into the grass. I heard a bone snap like a young branch. He yelled when each one grabbed an arm and began pulling. He yelled around the house, into the front yard, and into the van, covering all sounds of a small escape in the trees. Then the door slid shut, and an engine clicked on and whirred to life. And I was alone. I wanted to let go. I wanted to take my arms off the trunk and fold them to my chest like a mummy, loosen my thighs from their grip, and fall into a backward swan dive to the bottom. I pulled one hand back and clutched the opposite shoulder. Deep breath. You can do this. The other hand shook as it began to release. The skin of my thighs burned with the extra strain. Soon they too would be unclenched. Deep breath. If I survived the fall, which was possible, I'd be taken to a school with Mitch. This thought was appealing at first, and for a brief moment I had some kind of TV reunion in my head. Me, Mitch, Mom and Dad. But I knew that's not how it would go. A few had escaped from the schools, and the stories they told were anything but heartwarming. There's a man named Migwans who came from the council last night, my father had said one night when we were still together. He escaped from one of the satellite schools, the one up by Lake Superior. Dad had bags under his eyes. He'd gathered us around the kitchen table to talk, but spoke haltingly, like he'd rather not. 
He told us about what's happening to our people. It wasn't easy to hear, and he was frantic, tried to leave right away, looking for this Isaac fellow. Jean, maybe the boy should go into the other room for this. Miguan says the Converter's Council didn't set up the schools brand new. He says they were based on old residential school systems they tried to use to break our people to begin with way back. He paused and drank half of the liquid in his greasy glass, the kind of moonshine he kept in an old pop bottle on the back stoop. He placed it in hard on the picnic table we had hauled in to the main room of the cabin. The glass echoed in the wood in its hollow curve. It was punctuation. It made me jump. He was in the gloomy place he went to when he spoke about how the world had changed. He said we were lucky we didn't remember how it had been, so we had less to mourn. And I believed him. Okay, boys, that's it. Off to bed. Mum shooed us off from the bench, pushing us out the door before we could formulate an argument to stay. Dad stopped me to kiss the top of my head, and I felt safe, even just for a minute. We heard Mum crying as we lay in bed that night, and the next day we packed up that small cottage we'd been staying in since our apartment in the city had lost power and things had gotten dangerous. We hadn't even spent a full year there, and none of us were keen on leaving, especially me and Mitch. We had family here, blood and otherwise. There were other families, people like us who had settled here. The old people called it the New Road Allowance. And now we were jamming clothes in jars of preserves wrapped in blankets and into our duffel bags to the move again. I thought about our walk into this settlement from the city. We walk north, Dad had said then. North is where the others will head. We'll spend a season up by Bay Zone. We'll hole up in one of those cabins up there and I'll try to find others. We'll find a way, Frenchie. And up north is where we'll find home. For sure? Hells yes, for sure. I know so, We're because we're going to make a home there. If you make something happen, you can count on it for sure. What will we find there, Dad? I'd been nervous it would be all empty and wet, the constant rain making pools in our footprints before we could completely empty them from our feet. I was tired and hungry, and my shoes were as thin as cardboard, but I tried not to let any of that color my voice when I spoke. I knew we were all tired and hungry and trudging along on leather skin shoes. I knew to be positive in the way a little kid comes home from school and can tell there's been an argument that day by the way the air smells in the front hall and decides that this is the day he'll start his math homework without being asked. Survival, I guess. We were out by Old Highway 11, having slipped the noose of the last suburb of East City. Unlike the smaller city outskirts where I'd later lose my brother, these suburbs were open and vast, a maze of darkened windows and burnt cars in kaleidoscope burrows that branched out like a geometric blossom of asphalt and curb and erupting driveways. I felt kind of special then, before I knew how dangerous special could be. I guess I was proud of my family, with our ragged shoes and our stringy hair. We were still kings among men. I held my twiggy walking stick like a scepter, chin tilted upwards towards the ashy sky. And now here we were again, getting ready for another journey into another unknown, driven by fear. But we never made that move, not together anyway. At what was supposed to be my father's last council meeting before he took the family north, it was decided they make one last-ditch effort to talk to the governors in the capital. They never came back.
All right, so that was it. It's actually not the full first chapter. It's the first part of the first chapter, but I didn't want to give too, too much away. Um, I'm really digging this book and I think you'll really like it. It's different, um, but I think that you'll really enjoy it. And I just wanted to share some of the um, praise that this book is getting. So Debbie Reese from the American Indians and Children's Literature says that it is about caring, about love, about how people can continue and will continue, and that she highly recommends The Marrow Thieves. And then Kirkus said, this is a tremendously emotional depth and tenderness, connecting readers with the complexity and compassion of Indigenous people, a dystopian world that is all too real and that has much to say about our own. So I think that you're really going to enjoy this book. Um, So try it out. It's The Marrow Thieves by Sherry Dimmeline. And let me know what you think. All right. Have a great day, All-Stars. Bye.